11, 1 through 45. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent a message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness must not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Accordingly, though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, after having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now trying to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Those who walk during the day do not stumble, because they see the light of this world. But those who walk at night stumble, because the light is not in them. After saying this, he told them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will be all right. Jesus, however, had been speaking about his death, but they thought that he was referring merely to sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews who had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. When she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but still at the place where Martha had, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary get up quickly and go out. They followed her because they thought she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus again, greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench because he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I t not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. 
The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. Thanks, Lee. I probably shouldn't admit this, but there are these times when we're doing these multiple readings where I'm like, oh, that's how those two things go together. And I think that just happened because this morning I, I want to explore waiting, but from the perspective of the psalm, but I just caught it in Lazarus. So let's start here, though. Uh, what are a couple things you're grateful for? Family. Family, there you go. And, and I was actually going to say, will you turn and just say to the person next to you, just one of them, just here's one of the things I'm grateful for. I know it's corny, but it's spring break. It's a small room. We can do this. So the question I want to explore this morning, oh, sorry, I just cut you off. The <laughs> question I want to jump into this morning is what if, what if there's a way of waiting that it's an active, not a passive task? And I ask it from this perspective of what, what, if, what if one of the unique aspects to the, to the Jesus way of being human is this way where we acknowledge that waiting is a part of the human experience. It's just unavoidable. And yet part of what's unique to the Jesus way of being human, and listen, if, if that's not you, if you're not there right now, if you're not following him, if you used to and you might again, or you're here because she does or he does or whatever, we are so thrilled that you're here and don't want to for a second pretend like we all agree and yet operate on the assumption that you're here because you're intrigued to explore this. And here's, I think, what you'd be exploring this morning. What if, what if what makes the human experience of waiting with God unique is we get to do something active, not passive? That we don't have to be dreadful, we, we don't have to be morose, that there's this combination of the victory of God at the cross, at the resurrection, which is what we're looking to and ahead to during Lent. And at the same time, this acknowledgement that grief is a, is a very, very real thing. So maybe we could just start here. What are a couple things you're waiting for? I mean, can, can you just within your mind's eye give voice to, okay, here's something. And, and maybe you walked in the door and the grief of it was, was noticeable when you did and maybe it just takes a second to go like, oh yeah, that, I think this is what I'm working on. What's a thing or two you're waiting for? And because I know that we all have lots of things to do on a Sunday and therefore you're here hopefully to experience relationship with people but also to just kind of move forward in your conversation with God, here's what I think Psalm 130 offers and that's what we're gonna look at this morning is this, okay, so how can you do that maybe a little bit differently? Uh, there, there's this very unique attribute to the Christian faith and it's called Trinitarianism and that gets kind of heady and uh, ethereal but really what it means is that God is inherently relational that even within God, God's self, there's this, there's this existence of relationship. And I'm wondering if part of what the ancients would invite us into is a way of waiting that's, that's relational with God. I mean, I can think of a couple things. I, I'm frankly waiting for God to finally raise up our next worship leader. I mean, I, like many of you, am so grateful for the band and I think they're doing an extraordinary job and I hear over and over and over again like that the music's often as good or better than it's ever been and I, I agree with all those things and yet there's a whole bunch of reasons why I still think that hiring a leader who can carry some of the load and lots of other things is really important and man, we're nine months, almost a year in to that, that waiting and, and nine months into having worked with this very reputable national search firm that's helping with us and there's been lots of kinds of conversations but there is just this like, 
Ugh, come on, Lord, when is it gonna happen? There's one for me, I don't know what yours is. The other one, and this, we probably share this one, is spring. I mean, I, I planned on saying that on Tuesday, and then like today happened. But there is this just honest, almost grief to it, isn't there? Like, seriously. Like, I need the vitamin D, and I want the trails, and green grass, and bonsai trees on the patio, and having a barbecue, and baseball. I mean, they played it yesterday, but holy schmoly, he's on a frozen infield. Like, spring is something. And in the very same way, what does it look like to, to wait with? And I think that's what Psalm 130 is maybe inviting some reflection on. So I'm, I'm going to jump in. If you've not been a part of the series, we're following the lectionary, which is kind of complicated language for these kind of appointed readings, John 11 being one of them and the brilliant story of Lazarus. But we've been teaching through the psalm that's kind of been vetted out. And this week's Psalm 130, and there's a couple things I want to point out before we dive in. Uh, because most of you aren't holding a Bible in your hand and what's easily missed about this psalm is one editorial note that's not from Zondervan, it's not modern, it goes way, way back and it's just simply this, a song of ascents. This has been kind of a fun study for me in the last year or so. What I didn't realize is there's 15 psalms in the book of Psalms labeled this way. From 120 to 134, they get this label and there's dialogue among the scholars like, what are they? Like, why does this editorial note come with these psalms? And, and it seems like the dominant point of view and the one that makes the most sense to me is that this was, this was the podcast. These 15 psalms were the podcast that people listened to on their road trip to Jerusalem. Like, we know that in the ancient world of Jesus, there were three times a year where Jewish people were called to, to to a, pilgrim, to a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And one of the neat, unique things about Jerusalem is no matter where you're at in Israel, whether you're north, south, east, or west, you always go up to Jerusalem, and that's like geographically accurate. And in many cases, if you're coming from the Galilee, it's a several-day journey. And there's this strong scholarly opinion that, that these were the psalms that people recited. These were, this was the radio station, if you will. Like, this was the playlist. And when you look at them, they have some unique traits because... They, they come with an element of grief, like some honest despair, because part of what they're doing is going up to Jerusalem and most of the time they're going to a capital that's occupied by a foreign power and most of the time they're gonna deal with, with Rome's armies and all these kind of hard things. But coupled with that is this hope that they, that they were trying to hang on to the Jewish story, which is a, is a world created by this God who recognizes things fell out of sorts but is committed to putting them back to rights and eventually that's gonna hit a new crescendo when God sends his Messiah. And so they just live in the like, mess of those two things. The other editorial note I think worth paying attention to is one that's not there. What's not there is, is any credit to any author. And some would say that this all the more speaks to, like this is a universal human song. That it's written by nobody from nowhere, and in another sense, it's written for everybody from everywhere. Because it's just very honestly human. So verse one, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. I think one of the most effective things to do when reading scripture is just like questions, observation, promises. Well, question, is, is this person experiencing grief? Are they in some kind of pain? And is it physical? Is it moral? Is it relational? Is it all of the above? And to what extent is this an individual cry? And to what extent is it a communal cry of like, ugh? 
like a country at war or something, but there's this honesty to it. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. So a couple weeks ago, we asked this question of can God still communicate? Like, does he still speak? Is, is he that close? I mean, is he that present to us? Notice this one's kind of asking the opposite question. Can God hear us? To what extent is prayer a productive activity? What, what's the value of going to God with our pains? Eugene Peterson, very famous for his uh, paraphrase of the Bible called The Message, actually a man who lived in the Flathead Valley uh, recently, well not recently, several years ago passed. He's got a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Fittingly, it's a song about the, song, the songs of ascent. It's, it's 15 chapters, if I recall, or maybe 16 with an introduction, and he's covering these. But in chapter one, he makes a couple observations that I, I, I think are helpful. The first is, he, he says that there's this universal human tendency to live under the idea that everything worth having can be had instantly. Whether that's a good marriage or a good financial picture or a good career, that everything, if it's really worth having, we can just have it. And his observation and his, his strong love for these 15 Psalms is that he thinks that the life of faith is often portrayed that way. We often hear at a rally, give your, name to, give your life to Jesus, and sometimes it's explicitly said, sometimes it's just implied, but if we're not careful, the implication is all your problems go away if you do this. He says that's not the way it works. And what he sees in these psalms is like advanced insights and observations about the spiritual life because what, the way he says it, I mean, the title, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, or the way he says it in chapter one, is it's a skill set built over time. The life of faith is not something that we just get. It's, it's, it's much like an academic pursuit or an athletic pursuit. It's much like a strong relationship, that it's something that we have to build into and learn and fall down and get back up over time. Which means part of the invitation he's saying is to see in this, like you get to do an internship with the person who's been doing it for 40 years. That we're getting to see from this community, like here's what it looks like when it, when it reaches these levels of maturity. Verse three, if you or Lord should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? Interesting to me that there's a person and a people who their first impulse, and maybe it was a learned first impulse, was to take responsibility. Like part of this psalm is this desire for forgiveness, one brought about ultimately by the, by the cross. But part of it is just a general confession that the circumstances I'm in, I've had something to do with making them. I was meeting with a friend recently. She's this super, super bright person who I don't think identifies as a Christ follower in this season. I've known her for, since way before I lived in Helena. Very, very, I think I already said intelligent. It was funny because as we were talking, and she's conversant on so many different issues. It's just kind of like buckle up and go for the ride because I love it. Like there's no, there's no talk about the Broncos. She has no time for that. It's like this big, big stuff. Uh, and she said, Adam, I think what's going on in our culture right now is nobody believes in causality. She was like, hold on, I gotta Google that. What the heck are we talking about? But she, she went off on this riff of, 
She said, I, I think part of what's going on here, and again, notice like the, what I wanted to observe here is this isn't a Christian saying this, even though that's what's going on in verse three here. She's just going, I think we're losing sight of the fact that decisions have consequences. Certainly, this psalm is not guilty of that. But it doesn't stay there, and it doesn't see it as that linear or that simplistic. It goes to the next level, but there's forgiveness with you so that you may be revered. So notice there's not just an understanding of responsibility, but there's an understanding like they have, and you see it in the last verses too, this very advanced understanding of what is this God like? This God is merciful, he's kind, he's compassionate, and yet this God... He, he holds us to standards. It's, it's a Jesus who's fully grace, fully truth, so difficult. But it's the next line that I just, I, I love where this goes. I think this is worth memorizing. I haven't started it yet, but you can decide for yourself. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning, more than those who watch for the morning. And see, this is the section that gets me to this, like, what if there's a waiting that's not passive? Because generally when I think about waiting or when you think about waiting or when your parents told you to wait, there's this implication is the only thing you can do is nothing. And I think the question that I want to ask is, does a watchman do nothing? Now, we don't use that language. We can go to the next slide. But in the ancient world, there would have been a person with a shofar, which is the horn, it's got several instances. One I read about this week was, you know, if, if your field was about ready to be harvested and that, that field's harvest was your way of feeding your family for a year, then when it got close to harvest, that got a little spooky because all it did was, all it required was someone to come in in the middle of the night and steal your harvest and you were toast. And so families would team up and they would take turn being watchmen over their harvest. There's a military aspect to it as well. In their case, a person watching over a city at night looking for an invading army. You know, we don't use the word. And I think in the ways that it's present in our culture, we take them for granted. Like our local police, they're, they're, they're watchmen, watchwomen. The military, in so many different ways, is, it's, they're, 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 they're watch people for us. That creepy doorbell thing that you have, that it goes off and you can see your mailman from 500 miles away, that's kind of a watchman type of thing, right? Like some of you have cameras in your house. We, we have it. But when you think about a person, say, uh, next slide, sitting on the hill in a fire tower, I don't know, 100 years ago? And what, what, what occurs to me in all of this is, I mean, if you were given the 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. shift to stand on top of the tower and look for signs of fire, would you call that an, an active or a passive task? I would argue it's very active. Hard work, I guess is what I mean. Like you have to be attentive in ways that, I mean, I'd rather hike Mount Helena for eight hours than sit on top of a fire tower for eight hours through the middle of the night and try to keep my eyes open, wouldn't you? It's active. It, it got me thinking, uh, one of the things that my friend Stan Simmons taught me many years ago when it comes to studying the Bible, is, and maybe you could use this in your own time, is he talks about, when you get through it and your brain's just tired and you've got all these kind of intellectual and somewhat uh, uh, like abstract ideas in your head, he would, say, he would say, just start doodling. Like just draw it was one of his, one of his tools. 
because it activates a different part of your brain and you start seeing it. Well, what it made me think about this week, and I can't do it, but I can at least try to create a visual, is for, for those of you who, since we can't mountain bike, I thought, well, I'll just ride mine on the stage. <laughs> but there's this thing, and I was hoping Chase Kravitz-Rushka would be here, but he's not, um, which I'm not trying to call him out. But there's this thing that really good riders can do. I mean, you probably, even if you don't ride, you see him at a stop sign, you know, where they're like on their bike, I can't do it. Uh, but but do, where they're not moving, you watch, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Again, is that an active or a passive task? I would argue it's very active. But it's active in a different way. Like, is it work? This is not going to go well. Let's do that. Is it work? Yeah, it's work. It's a different kind of work. I, I heard recently, next slide, that the word hope is disappearing from the American lexicon. Uh, that there's evidence that it's being used less now than, than perhaps ever before in American history. And I think, man, I can think of a lot of words that would, we'd do well to get rid of. Moist, I think that word could just <laughs> go away forever. That, that word so, so serves no positive purpose whatsoever. Uh, pivot, I mean, we all overuse that word, right? Like we're all so proud of ourselves in early COVID, like we're pivoting, we're pivoting. It's just, it's just, it's done. Uh, literally, so annoying. Like, it's one of those words when you notice yourself using it. Like, but hope? And I wonder, what, like, what does that say about the tendencies of a culture that, that just lack the vocabulary? Because there was once a rabbi who said it's out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I wonder, what's the role of a people uh, called the church who... Who, who follow a rabbi who, for the joy set before him, headed off for the cross, who one of his most brilliant teachers, Paul, said things like, be joyful, always pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. And it brings me back to this idea of what does it look like to be active in our waiting? Like, not, not dishonest, not fake, not veiled. I mean, it starts with this really honest kind of deep in the gut confession and like a watchman waiting, like I'm, I'm just, I'm alert. We, we did that series this, this fall called Your Mental Game and there's that Colossians 4.2 verse that many of you memorized. Uh, be, uh, what does it say? Uh, now I lost it. Anybody got 4.2 memorized? Yeah, be devoted. Okay, go ahead, Steve, say it. Be, it's like it, the, it ends with be watchful and thankful, but now I can't remember the, how it starts. There you go. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, I think is like an amalgamation of two different translations. There's a podcast, some of you have listened to it. I, I put it on the mind map. I know I do that often, but it, I genuinely go like, man, please go listen to this podcast. It's a Catholic thinker who did a lecture on joy and argues that perhaps there's nothing more offensive to God than a Christian who lacks it. And he has this great little riff that he does where he says, you know, the 10,000 years ago, the person who stopped to smell the flowers got eaten by the saber-toothed tiger. And so like genetically, we're wired to look for the bad. We're, we're genetically wired to, to be on high alert for danger. And yet we follow a faith that says, hey, listen, victory's been had. God is bigger. 
be joyful always. So let's just end here. Last slide. In, in what ways is, are you being asked to, to wait with joy? And what are the active ways of waiting? I mean, I think it starts with prayer. And I don't know about you, but my experience is generally when I pray for something I'm waiting for, maybe it's just because of ADD or caffeine or something else, but I almost always leave that time with a few tangible things to do. And I think sometimes that's just like kind of God because we're such a control freak and I, I want to ha- play some part in solving the problem. But even when I'm praying for the worship thing, that there's oftentimes a, a few different things that I'll, that I'll do after that. Reach out to Steve from this guy or just, just different tasks that I won't waste your time with. So what are you waiting for? And what would it look like to, to do so relationally with God? And what would be the steps involved in active waiting? I think waiting often gets a very bad rap because it's perceived as something you just do and sit on, the, sit on the couch and lots of our friends are cynical towards faith because they see Christians when they say waiting as just sitting there doing nothing. But what if that's not at all what it is? It's this relational dance with God where he does assign task and we do keep circling back and we just trust the process over time and we give voice to the grief and we cling to the joy. So probably all of us have things. What what I'd like to do is I'm gonna pray but the intention isn't for you to listen to me. You can pray in your own head there with whatever stuff you're waiting for or maybe friends that you know are waiting and then we're gonna move into communion as the band comes up here. So God... We all have stuff, and we also recognize that faith is, is the skill learned over time. So would you help us wait well, God, and that we would even leave this morning with some real specific things that we can bring all of this into and you into with us. And then, God, as we think about communion, and we just know that so much of what it means to be yours is to be sent back out into the world, filled with your spirit, our ordinary, everyday, everyday lives, just empowered by you. And we pray that in the same way you would send your spirit into us and as we reflect through communion, bread and wine, that that you would send your spirit into those things, make them food for our souls for this week. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us online at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook or Instagram.